but the state itself is inherently violent. We could grapple with being orphans of the state, but not wanting to return to it. And then understanding that we have the capacity to provide protections and revolutionary love would be the catalyst for restraining our aggressions, not towards our predators, but towards each other and maintaining our zones with all our contradictions, our our racism, our white nationalism, our you know, our pho- our transphobia, our classism, our nationalism, our vanities, right? I mean, I think we can do everything that we need to do, and thus we become cadres. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about radical politics, medical anthropology and the sociology of science. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Joy James about revolutionary love and care under racial capitalism. Joy James is a political philosopher, academic and activist. She is the author of numerous books, including Shadow Boxing, Resisting State Violence and Seeking the Beloved Community. She has also edited collections, including the Angela Davis Reader, Imprisoned Intellectuals, and the New Abolitionists. Her most recent book, titled In Pursuit of Revolutionary Love, published with Divided Press in December of last year. The book includes a number of voices and collaborators, including a foreword by Deshaun L. Harrison, and an afterword by Mumia Abu-Jamal. The writing included in this book reflects a chorus on the potential of revolutionary love in the face of the violence and captivity that shapes American life. And in this conversation, Joy discusses numerous topics, including Afro-pessimism, eugenics, and the figure of the captive maternal. A quick reminder for those that aren't aware, Red Medicine is going to be holding a night of readings and discussion in London on May 25th at the Horse Hospital. You can find a link which contains all the details and tickets in the description of this show. The cost of tickets is on a sliding scale, so you can pay what you can afford. And the subject of the evening will be on the historical, cultural and political significance of illness. It's going to be a really great evening, so join us if you can. And now on with the conversation with Joy. Let me start by asking you about the community around the book. Um, maybe you could just introduce people to the community that you've engaged with and you've worked with to kind of produce this this body yeah. of work. So the community was always in formation, right? It was always kind of like first day of class in elementary school or pre-K. It's like we you don't really know people, but you know you need to be connected. So you make the effort. You, you don't want to be that one kid playing by themselves in the sandbox. So in order for this book to be to become a book, it started off as a series of podcasts with people I didn't know. And the conversations developed. And because I was in conversation, I had to pay more attention to what I was saying and what my analyses were. I also had to pay more attention to my emotional needs and my emotional intelligence. So it crystallized for me that I needed community. I always knew that, but I didn't understand how much I needed community. 
And then I begin to understand that my capacity to be an intellectual and to be an intellectual who hopefully is useful is tied to community. So these podcasts then became transcribed and then they became, um, after the transcriptions appeared, they became ordered um, into book form. And they're not ordered by, or they're not, the sequence in the table of contents is not based on chronology. It's based on connectors. And you do emphasize in a lot of your work the importance of theory doing it, that it should be responsive to um political struggle and it should always be in contact with that could you talk a little bit about why that's so important and and how it shapes your own work yeah that's a really important question I'll try my best to respond to it I mean on one level when I was learning as a doctoral student my dissertations on Hannah Arendt feminist perspectives right on um, Jürgen's Hammer Moss's theory of democracy as communication and Arendt picking that up but also having been a, a Jewish young person during the rise of the Third Reich and then fleeing Germany and surviving, but also having a relationship with her advisor who was a Nazi, um, that there's a lot of contradictions, right? But what we're trying to do is to resist totalitarianism. You know, The Origins of Totalitarianism is one of her important texts. But I realized my making any kind of sense of around that my choosing around had to be relevant to what I was seeing and doing as a grad student organizing. And sometimes I did skip some classes in order to be at some marches. But I believe that the epistemology of Bernard Lonergan and others, and I feel like I moved beyond Lonergan, right? Insight, epistemology shaped by experience, reflection, and judgment, that there had to be a fourth level, which would be action. So it's organizing with people, you know, against the war, uh, imperial wars abroad, against internal wars at home from highly funded and very lethal police forces, the wars that, you know, bring us poverty and humiliation, that my engagement in activism and learning from activists and organizers who sometimes thought I was acting like a privileged, you know, petty bourgeois you know, academic or soon to be academic. And if I mingled all of those together, I would be able to have a deeper perspective. And so when I, decades later, get to the podcast, like what I'm bringing is not just as some academic training, but the contradictions of the academia or academic settings, right? That if you don't have connections to the material struggles on the ground, and some of the things I remember I was doing organizing, say, around ACT UP, right, around homophobia, but then realizing that mostly it was white gay male and, and they had some issues around misogyny and they were definitely racist to the core, like how you how you balance that or organizing around the Central Park case with Black feminists repeating the lies of the NYPD in order to not have to do the labor of investigating anything and coming down on the side of the state and looking like they're noble Black feminists when actually the youths who were railroaded for the rape and um, torture of Trish Mealy, a white um, Solomon banker, Wall Street banker, that her um, violation had to be tagged against, you know, 15, 16, 17-year-old kids who didn't have a proper representation or the support. So all these contradictions 
became, I guess I'll call it a crucible. I was using that word earlier today, so I'm just going to roll with it. It became a a zone in which I had to um, be burnt, you know, overheated to try to understand the relationship of getting a doctorate with like white conservative males who dominated philosophy at the time and having a connection with the so-called streets, which is organizing against war, against imperialism and against lynching, the legal lynching, right, of the Central Park Five, the so-called Central Park Five. Is it too reductive to say part of that role as a theorist, as a thinker embedded in political struggle is the sort of thing of the work as you do is crafting tools in a way, theoretical tools that um, Mm -hmm. allow for struggle to be done perhaps more efficiently? I like that. Nobody's nobody's ever said that to me. Yeah, I mean, because sometimes, you know, uh, Frank Wilderson in a segment we did at Williams College was I was able to repurpose some of the money from Mellon grants to do what I thought was more relevant in terms of social justice. But the grad students came up with the concept of ontology of betrayal. And so I invited Frank Wilderson as you know one of the key architects of Afro-pessimism, along with Jared Secton and Selma Terefe, uh Ethiopian or Ethiopian American uh younger black woman scholar. You know, we were in this this dialogue or discussion about our relevancy or our struggles, and, and Frank called me a pragmatist. Like when I said I'm not an Afro-pessimist, his position was, I don't go around saying I'm not a pragmatist. And I was like, oh, okay, by default, you're saying I'm a pragmatist. But I think that, um, I mean, we could call it a utilitarian or use value, but I think what I was searching for was a certain level of productivity and efficiency and a resistance to war. Mm. Whether it's the wars against trans people, LGBTQ plus, wars against Black people, Indigenous people, mm. wars against undocumented, wars against the poor. I wanted to sharpen our skills. Mm. And of course, I'm learning all the time. So my skills are being sharpened because I'm learning from everybody. But as somebody who had the time, even though you know I went to debt for it, um, to spend years to get a doctorate, that meant I was supposed to be in training for something, and I was hoping it would be more than an academic career, that it would be relevant and useful. And so if that's pragmatic, then yeah, I'm I'm a pragmatist. I mean, the reason why I ask is, I thought we could talk a little bit about one of the um, theoretical frameworks that runs throughout this collection and, and your work more generally with the, the captive maternal and, and how we might think about that as a tool by which to think about a a left liberatory idea of health and care and medicine maybe and um, perhaps the place to start with that um, before maybe you introduce the the framework for people that are less familiar with your work could you maybe talk a little bit about what was it you were seeing that you wanted to provide an analytic lens for that led you to the idea of the captive I think the captive maternal is not clearly defined you know in my mind but it's over years has been a process. So 2016, I did, I wrote the article at the request of white abolitionists, non-binary, and those who had gender formation ideas or identities. It's called The Womb of Western Theory. I believe it's trauma, time, theft, and the captive maternal. And I was asked to to write it by um, a white trans 
theorist, philosopher, and probably political philosopher. And then after I did 40 pages and I sent it in, they were like, you don't have a gender here. Like, so it's a Captain Maternal, a woman, or what is it? And I realized, oh, wow. Like, it's not an identity. It's not a gender identity. It's it's a function. And so I use maternal as opposed to paternal. And maybe, again, it's it has some family trauma thing, you know, because my paternal was a military intelligence officer working for Empire in some of the bloodiest decades, right? And so the maternal, even though it's not perfect, became the register I understood best. And I don't think it was about my personal identity, you know, even though I had reached out and, you know, tried to be helpful and took in, you know, people who are not biological, but actually beautiful and stunning, but also queer and, you know, neuroatypical. Um, And when I'm in Harlem, because I was like, oh, we're going to live with Black culture, what's left of it, because they're gentrifying Manhattan, upper Manhattan, I'm going to live in Harlem and be with Black folks. And then I was like, wow, these schools are not good up here. They're under-resourced. The cops are off the hook. The mail doesn't get delivered on time. It's like I stayed as long as I could. And I I guess I could stay longer. But it's like, okay, for kids, we're moving to the Upper West Side. That's where the schools are that, like, you know, the school my kid ended up in, one of them was um, had a half a million dollar greenhouse that the PTA, the parents association just raise the money because we got that you know we roll right mm. they're like kind of like rich rappers <laughs> and it's like so they throw down the money and you know we stay for a while but then the racism becomes like wow this is too much so that's the thing about the captain maternal they're captain not just because of the history of the democracy right that you know from the colonial era engages in human trafficking and the disposability of indigenous and African lives who become black indigenous lives, right? And the exploitation and the rape. So like in the history, captivity is built into US democracy. You wouldn't have made this kind of money. You couldn't have been an empire unless you stole this amount of land and you had to kill a lot of people to take it. And then you had to, you know, take people from another continent and bring it over here and dehumanize them. And then you could go from one period of so many numbers in the 1800s and 30 years later, your numbers have almost tripled. That's because it's mass rape that, you know, you're growing, quote, a crop out of humans, right? So that's the captivity that is built in and all the remedies that are supposed to signify our freedom, 13th Amendment, after the Civil War wrote that. I got repurposed because it says if you're duly convicted of a crime, involuntary servitude is what you get, which is slavery. Right. So it's like you fought a war, the bloodiest war in the States to abolish slavery, and then you get it in another form so that, you know, after the war, decades later, and you have the convict prison lease system after Reconstruction is betrayed, you know, by the Rutherford Hayes Act, where a northern guy who wants to be president has needs Confederacy votes to nail it. And, the you know, Confederates are like, okay, we'll do this, but you have to withdraw the northern troops. And once they do, then it's like, we will shoot up Black people until they understand that they are still slaves, right? So after the 13th Amendment tells you that incarceration is linked to slavery, you have the convict prison lease system where they work you to death because you're no longer private property. So you don't have the value of the private owner to maintain you alive, even if they were maintaining you at subsistence levels. 
which means you work people to death. So Black people died at faster rates under, quote, freedom than we had in enslavement because we were owned by the state. And then you move there, you know, to the Black codes, Jim Crow, you know, segregation, and then you get these movements largely led by these brilliant youth, right? Southern movements, civil rights movements, and then later the Black power movements. So I watch our trajectory and I see the Trojan horses, 13th Amendment, you're free. Oh, actually, you're not free. A mass incarceration. At one point, most of the people incarcerated are white. And then when you realize you can make money off of this, disproportionately, it starts to be Black, you know, Brown, Indigenous people. I look at the 14th Amendment where I'm going to say we as a collective, we were granted political personhood. Like, oh, you're a slave, you're not human. Okay, now you have political personhood. But over decades, the Supreme Court altered that you know, construct as a legal right and redistributed it to predominantly white corporations so they can have endless funding in presidential campaigns. So, okay, well, I thought we had the 13th. It was working for us. No, it doesn't. I thought we had the 14th. Oh, actually, it's working for corporations. And then there are other amendments, like the Voting Rights Act from 1965, that in 2013, uh, Shelby, you know, I believe it's Alabama County, versus Holder, which is Eric Holder, who's the attorney general under Barack Obama, they say, well, we don't have to protect black and brown voters or indigenous voters because like that's just the old school stuff. Like we don't do that anymore. And then immediately when they're back in power and they nullify the law, there are no protections. And if the only way to be a citizen is through voting and you say we cannot vote because we have been incarcerated, so that gets nullified, then you say we cannot vote because you have armed white people with AK-47s and camouflage patrolling polling precincts where people go to vote if they're predominantly Black or Latino. You know, it's just the democracy is a Trojan horse itself. It is in the United States. It's a white nationalist project. And in Athens, it, like everybody didn't get to vote either. Their slaves so, didn't get vote. Neither did women, neither did children. So they didn't get represented. And this reconstruction of old hierarchies, because it's poisoned by white identity politics that demand a super race, which is really drifting towards neo-Nazi territory, I mean, this is our inheritance. And so the captive material is captive because the democracy is capture. But it, we're also captive because we love and care for each other. So the first stages of conflicted caretaker, get those your kids into these decent schools, which are like privilege, and then they're going to turn out to be pro-capitalism or internalize anti-Blackness. Second stage protests to the white principle, and they blow you off. Like I've gone through all these stages. <laughs> Third stage, like try to like organize people. Like, shouldn't we get together as parents and like start a movement? Why is it that the Department of Education sees our kids as disposable? Why is it that rich white people, like literally, I've known like white mothers who have a hundred million and they roll in with their kids. And it's like, of course, they need services. I roll in with my kid as middle class black and with a doctorate and working in Ivy's. It's like, yeah, you're just a ghetto hustler trying to please the system. It's like, I wish I had a finger to give for you and not for, but to you. And so it's it's a dishonor, it's a humiliation. So from protests, you go to movement, trying to organize people, which is not always easy. 
And then at some point, I believe these are my stages that I see with the Captain Maternal. You move to Maranage. We need freedom schools. We need autonomy. This democracy doesn't work for us. Actually, it is quite lethal and it hates us, which is why you get these spectacle lynchings of Black people, predominantly young Black males, you know, being murdered by police forces. And then death is monetized because then we're going to pay $20 million for Breonna Taylor. And, you know, there'll be, you know, payout for Tyree Nichols. But, you know, before that, we have, you know, $6 million for Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old who's playing with a toy gun or maybe not just sitting there and he's shot by Timothy Lohman. It is, it is the way in which the bureaucracy assumes that we will die prematurely and violently. And so if that's the norm, they're going to play the script. And so after the marinage, I believe, when we try to form autonomy and distance from the democracy as a predatory formation, that is when we encounter war. And so then we become war resistors. And I talk about Attica in that vein, right? Mm. It's identified as all male, but no, they were caretaking to each other. They were singing each other. They were soothing each other. Some people were lovers with each other. Some people were perhaps too. Um, they cooked for each other. They told jokes. They were like, I'm going to keep you stable. We're going to make, we're going to get through this together. And then we're going to protest the prison. Like, don't like exploit us for 27 cents an hour. Don't call us the N-word. Don't call us boy. And then, okay, now we went from the protest to a movement. George Jackson has been murdered across the continent, but we're reading him. So we have an emotional tie. And uh, we're going to start a movement. We're going to take over the prison. And that's Maranage. We're going to build a maroon camp inside a fortress. And we're going to negotiate for human rights. But every autonomous zone that the indigenous or the Black create is hunted by the state. And so they bring in the National Guard with Vietnam military hardware, and they kill they kill the leaders by shooting through the hostages. And later, I understand from other scholars, once the prison guards are able to take the control of the prison, they torture and they murder other leaders, and that gets off the books. So for me, there may be another stage past the war resistor, or maybe it becomes too devastating that people just start moving back down the stages. Like, I can't do this anymore. I like did 40 years in prison or I lost people or I got shot up. Um, they, You know, they when they took over the prison, they sexually assaulted and sodomized, you know, the rebels. Um, I can't take it. I've got to go back to the protest level or maybe I just conflicted or celebratory caretaker. And I actually believe in our movement circles today where we ended up with movement millionaires and celebrity movement makers that um, our fear has become the dominant expression of our most popularized political formations. You said a lot of stuff there and um, I'm just thinking about where to come back on but And I think one thing that runs through some of what you're saying, which I think might be a helpful maybe rejoinder, is um, previously on this podcast I've spoken to people about the role of eugenics in the formation of American imperialism. Um, mm-hmm. and, and one huge. thing, yeah, and one thing we can think about with the captive maternal is that is historically the the target of the subject of eugenic technologies. Maybe speaking from the place of the captive maternal, how 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 do we understand the role of eugenic technologies in the structuring, forming, and maintenance of uh, of American capital, and probably by extension a kind of global capital. Yeah, that's really interesting. So when you were speaking, what came to mind was Vincent Woodard's 
the delectable Negroes, Black queer theorists at a, in American studies at UT Austin. What they write in the book is that there's a need to consume us, Be, you know, our culture, mm. right? I mean, whatever the mutation is that we've become, and I'm, I'm, you know, I know people from the Caribbean who look down on Black Americans and definitely people from the continent. But yeah, Black Americans are a mutation. You know, whatever the religions were practiced on the continent, you know, and the wars to get us on a boat, and then the warfare over the waters, in which some of us jumped overboard or took people with us, et cetera, et cetera, or died in the hole. And then the wars on these shores that we were constantly changing because the war zone had no rationality. And so the disposability, it, it's stunning. And, you know, sometimes I think of the camps in Germany, but I think it goes beyond that because it, the timeline was longer, but also the need to eradicate the Black, but maintain possession of the Black. So it was in total disposability. And like this desire to dishonor and disappear simultaneously, but also to consume Vincent Water, delectable Negro. You're an edible. And so even if eugenics is part of it, and it is, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer, the civil rights organizer, talked about the Mississippi appendectomy because she was forcibly sterilized without her knowledge, right? Mm. Yet she still adopted other children. Mm. So we're more than our biological capacity as a people what we do as elites is a whole other thing because we're all like sucked into the vacuum of consumer and celebrity culture but the understanding from the era of formal captivity is like you know i use this i use the twins metaphor analogy because my mother was a twin identical twin and she and her sister my aunt grew up sharecropping in mississippi and saw a lot I mean, they went in the fields at age five. And when you discipline children that young to be workers, to work like eight, 10, 12 hour days, that's a mutation. So the thing I see about our disposability is that we're also a necessity, not just around material accumulation. And that's where I think some of the traditional Marxists read it incorrectly, that there's a desire for the Black. And there's a desire to control and consume the Black, whether it's the culture or the hairstyle or the language or the dance, the music, the rebellion, the mystification of our realities tied to love and struggle are part of commodity culture. And I don't think we fully have grappled with that. And that's why I think this whole notion of Black excellence or, oh, look, I got this award or something like that mystifies the fact that a war is a war. Nobody cares if you got a gold medal or put, put, people put money in your bank account. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that as well, because as someone who's been involved in struggle you know, for, for over numerous decades, what have you, you're, you're quite critical of the pro proliferation of, I guess, discourses around anti-racism or, or abolition in certain what would you call them, kind of institutions or, 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 yeah, institutions of, you know, professionalization of mm. the academy, of NGOs, of charities, of the marketplace, you know, of social media. But of course, you know, it's very difficult to break free from those, you know, your 
you're you're also right critically of your own implication in, in the in the academic system. I mean, what what do you make of the proliferation of discourses in this way? And 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 is there a way to think about it beyond a kind of purely um, maybe dismiss? You know, is it is it possible to make use of these these institutions, or or, or are we kind of forever preemptively captured by their own, their structures? I mean, I work in the, in this sector, and I've been working here for decades, meaning elite academia. So I never had to teach for four. I never had to do commuter college. I never had to hustle, right? Because you know, for whatever reason, I went into the elite zones. And what a colleague of mine, who's also like a family member, who's in the Harlem Black Panther Party, so Panther Vet, who became an academic at the PhD, right? You know, what they were saying once on an interview is that this is also a form of capture, that you can say, oh, we got the left version of Black radicalism, and we have it, if not in the Petri dish, then we have it, you know, on a placard or, you know, in at UC um, Riverside, where Frank Wilderson, who's academic, who also fought in a Revolutionary War. He fought with the ANC on Conto Suizue underground during the South African apartheid era. Mm. And, and I've known him for over 20 years. Like when he was a doctoral student, I brought him to Brown, you know, and kind of helped leverage his ideas and those of Jared Sexton as well as former political prisoners. But one of the things I noted, I'm going to get a long way to answer your query. That's fine. It's like, Wilderson and Afro-pessimists, I'm not talking about the theoretical ones who just like are looking at texts and ideas, but the people who actually struggle on the ground. Animosity towards them in the academy is stellar. And I was trying to figure out what why would why do y'all hate that much, right? And then it was like, oh, the animosity towards me is also like high on the register. And then it's because, okay, what are we doing that are pissing people off? And who are we pissing off? And so at some level, you know, we can talk about white supremacy and white supremacists or white nationalist academics or white liberals never show up. But then it became really clear we were talking about black liberals or what I would define as radical liberals because they're left mainstream. But the adjective is radical and the noun is liberals. Right. I mean, essentially, they're working with the state like don't vote third party independence, like stay in the Democratic Party. And the monies that they come from, and you know, I've said before, you know, it's from finance capital. And I've said, you know, repetitively, before finance capital doesn't fund freedom movements. Mm. It's cap it's a form of capture. And so, like there's like these freedom scholars that get a quarter of a million dollars. And then I'm like, oh, what is this? Then I realized the funder is actually a foundation where they made their money out of foster care removal. And disproportionately, mm. Black families are torn apart, not because they're dysfunctional and violent, they're poor, mm. right? And then I'm like, wait, capture is funding our freedom? No, capture is funding our capture and funding our freedom at the same No, that can't be real. It's like Jeff Bezos giving Van Jones, who isn't quoted abolitionist, $100 million, but then he fights the unionization of Amazon workers, and he's also probably funding the police too. And so the money you get to be, quote, a liberal or progressive is pennies on the dollars in terms of the money that is sent to maintain and stabilize the state. So back to Wilderson. I mean, Wilderson will say in his memoirs that one of his, quote, jobs, that's air quotes, 
does he get Nelson Mandela to push him in public? And then I hear from Africans and from Black people in the U.S. and other people, they're horrified. But I was like, so what's so horrific? I mean, that was his job. And I understand it because Mandela was a capitalist. And people feel like you say African capitalist, that makes it better. It's like Black cop. That makes it better. Well, it didn't work for Tyree Nichols. It was black cop. I mean, there's some other white cops involved, but the black cops are the one that basically beat him to death. Right. And so, and Obama, as I said, was your first black imperial president. So you just think if you like mask it with blackness, somehow it's progressive. So, you know, one of the things with Wilderson is he did his job. He was supposed to point out the contradictions. Mm. But what people want, they want heroes and they want reassurances like in a fairy tale, like Hansel and Gretel have to follow the breadcrumb trail. But, you know, just before the witch is going to off them and eat them, you know, the kids are suddenly going to get the insight and power to move on the witch and then they survive. Right. And whether it's the bad stepmother, however, the origin story of how they ended up in the forest in the first place, like what parent was in charge of this? Um, that becomes secondary to their miraculous agency to save themselves. And I'm like, that's not how the world works for poor kids or kids in ice camps who were stolen from their parents under the Trump administration. And the Biden is, quote, trying. And like, you know, I'm not there, so I don't know how hard they're trying. But there are hundreds of missing children. And for me, that's human trafficking. Like you just, where did you take the six-month-old? Where did you take the two-year-old? Who did you give them to? Who would ad- adopted them without parental permission? And people lose their kids through underground traffickers who are just sex trafficking, but they also lose them through the states, through police violence, through the state government apparatus, and just through the way in which the state becomes an extension of trade, of predatory trade. So what Wilderson did is what he is, right? Is the only academic who ever fought in a guerrilla war. But I think that gives people more reason to hate him. You know, because it's it's kind of like, well, y'all didn't take the risk. And actually, I can't see y'all taking, I'm gonna be honest, I can't see your, not like you have to report into me and tell me how you risk stuff. But again, like if the reason this money came in, and I'm on a Mellon grant, so I'm administering money, but I try to like send it towards, you know, Samaria Rice or people who lost kids or something like that, right? Back to the community. And, it, you know, I get a course reduction. I don't get directly paid through this. But if the reason the money, you know, flowed this heavily, hundreds of millions, probably into billions, it's around the embarrassment of George Floyd being choked out for eight minutes, calling for his mother with a white cop kneeling on him and having his hands in his pocket. Like this is just another day at the job. And then people are taking cell phone and yelling, but there's no agency. And I don't know what I would do because I wasn't there, but there's no agency to stop it. Ten, eight minutes is a lot, but we are afraid of taking the repercussions and rightly so for rebelling against murder in the public square. But I don't believe the conventional abolition that you get from academia or these foundations or these people who get these large, you know, quarter million dollar grants or a lot of money flowing. I don't believe they're advocating that we train ourselves on how to stop a murder in the public square. And at least 
you know, Wilderson tried to do something. And I think it's that comparison that people don't want to see. And so, no, there are academics who risked everything, including their lives. So the sector is corrupt, but that doesn't mean everybody in the sector is corrupt. But the ones I think who have the most integrity, even if you don't agree with their analyses, they risk, like the political prisoners. I mean, you shouldn't just like throw garbage at them because they refuse to be liberals. Yeah. Could you also speak about, I guess it's like a a failing in some sense on the left, and it's something you point out in your writing to, to adequately make use of and integrate and look to intellectuals, activists, um, prisoners in incarcerated in, in institutions in the US, but of course it's that situation is happening internationally. Could you talk about the importance of that? But then also like perhaps in the instance of um Mumia Abu Jamal, mm. the the challenges that are presented in organizing with people in prisons and, and producing work with people in prisons. Yeah, that's a poor query. Um so first I would think I would start with Stevie Wilson, who's a queer Black writer incarcerated in Pennsylvania. Actually, I believe they are in the same prison as Mumia Bojamal, but they're not allowed to speak to each other. I mean, this is how these prisons are, right? Mm -hmm. You know, total capture. So there's a piece that came out on Tuesday in a publication titled Inquest. It's, it's, It's part of the Harvard University platform. And so they focus on the abolition and they took an excerpt from In Pursuit of Revolutionary Love and they they scaled it down about abolition alchemy. And in there, in this piece, I, I quote Stephen or Stevie Wilson about what it meant or means to be a Black queer captive and to also be an author and how when they started to do whistleblowing on um, the disposability of people during COVID, I mean, Incarcerated were dying at stunning rates. I know like in nursing homes, people were leaving the planet. And in New York, there should still be investigations of what was going on with the nursing homes under Governor Cuomo. But the incarcerated, like the enslaved, I mean, if you kill them, nobody's going to really charge you with anything, right? Mm-hmm. Even if you kill them by neglect. So Stevie Wilson's writing about this. They get put in solitary confinement. And so the the question, so it's a short 2,000-word piece in Inquest, which is linked to a, an interview I had with Kalonji Changa, who is one of the co-founders of Free the People, FTP, which if you use imagination, that acronym FTP can mean other things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're talking about multiple things, not so much about Stevie Wilson, but about the book, but also how academics dominated the discourse. And I've been around long enough. I was there when that first started to happen. So I talk about an airbrushing revolution for the sake of abolition. When I was asked out of the blue to this conference as a untenured assistant prof, and I had to you know work with people and deal with their aggression to raise, it became the most expensive conference actually at CU Boulder. And it was the request was made by Angela Davis, right? And so what I learned was that the academy is not the appropriate staging ground for abolitionist struggles, because that's not what they do. They do platforming, and they do academic collections, and they do scholarship. I mean, there's nothing in the history of elite academia that signals that you're going to see some kind of John Brown move come out of the academy. That's not what it does. 
or if you want to go pacifist, um, Philip and Daniel Berger, right, the Irish Catholic anti-war activists, or just, I mean, I'm using white examples because these, these are white universities. They didn't go to HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, right? They went to this premier one state, Berkeley or CU Boulder, or later Columbia University or wherever, right? And yes, I did that at Brown, but I used my personal research funds. I just like nobody was going to fund it. And then I brought in, you know, rebels and revolutionaries. So I think if we were honest about the sectors in which we work and how we're compensated and why we're compensated, that would help us not try to use abolition as a brand or as a commodity. But I'm not sure we want to be honest. Like I realized for me, I can start teaching Ludwig Wittgenstein and I'm still going to get paid the same money. I'm still going to make the same money. So like, I, I don't have a brand. I have a critique, but I don't have a brand. I'm sure people say, oh, Captain Maternal is your brand. Again, you know, bourgeois black feminism, but it's like, you know, I don't have time for this all day. I don't have a brand and I'm not interested and I can't make money off of a brand because whatever I do, it's, it's not only that if it is radical, I'll accept that. But the reality is it's anti-liberal and liberalism controls the academy. Mm. And it also controls large swaths or sectors of abolition. So Stevie's important because they didn't go in as a politicized persona. Mumia is important because Mumia went in as a politicized persona. Someone who became a leader in the Black Panther Party at age 14 or 15. And I, based on my scholarship research or organizing, whatever, for the last decades, what the state hates more than Black people is a Black rebel. Mm. Is And also whoever wants to align. You know, I think of Leonard Peltier. He's still in prison as a Native American who got caught up in the Pine Ridge. And it doesn't even make sense while he's in prison. It doesn't make sense while Mumia is in prison because we're like, where's the material evidence? There isn't any. We're waiting for the eventuary hearing. But if I said in other podcasts or other sectors, I wanted Mumia to do the afterward. Deshaun Harrison, whose um, book on Black queer, Black fat shaming, won the Lambda Award. Sorry, I don't remember the title of the book right now. The book being referenced here is titled Belly of the Beast, The Politics of Anti-Fatness as Anti-Blackness by Deshaun L. Harrison. They did the forward, and I'm very appreciative of that. But Mumi, who's been incarcerated over 40 years, having that afterward from Mumia was comfort. Mm. Right? I mean, we couldn't get him out, still trying, but could communicate. But even to communicate, I had to reach out to various people. And the people who helped were not really the official people. I mean, they were connected, but like their attorneys, they understood, like, I can walk something in because we couldn't even get the manuscript or repeat it. We couldn't get anything. Mm. And Mumi's ability to walk, the, you know, to receive it meant what white allies had to walk it in and they wouldn't be the big names around Mumia. And then they had to go back and walk out the afterward, right? Because all of this is prohibited. Communication is prohibited. Theory is prohibited. Love is prohibited. And so when I read Mumia, and I first knew about his case in the 90s when I was organizing 
with millions of people to keep Mumia off a of death row. And later they agreed to life imprisonment, which is just death by life imprisonment. It's still death. And a couple months ago, their partner, their wife of over 40 years um, died and they were not allowed to go to the funeral. So what I knew about Mumia is that they had sustained in incredible amounts of pain and abuse and still had the capacity for love. And I was really interested in Mumia, of course, you know, I anthologized like three or four publications around political prisoners. That was my attempt to help while I was, or be supportive while I was at Brown University. Um, But Mumia has heart and soul and grit in terms of war resistance. So that last stage of the Captain Maternal the stage of the war resistors, Mumia embodies that, but never lost the love. It never became about revenge or hatred or their personal suffering. It was all about the love. And we all meet people like that. And I think that's what keeps us doing the work that we do and allows us to have some relationship to devotion. Well, maybe we could finish up our conversation by talking about love, talking about revolutionary love. Last time we spoke, I said that love is kind of a phrase that, despite talking about care and solidarity, love is something that doesn't necessarily come up as much. And maybe there's a maybe there's a fear actually about talking about love because it is it does carry so much weight. Um, yeah, trying to think about how to put this into a question. Really, I mean, <laughs> it feels so big to just even say it out loud. But when I know. was at um... University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, a couple of weeks ago, talking to the doctoral students who put on this conference around insurgencies. And there were doctoral students from all over the world, different classes, right? Mexico, Brazil, Palestine. They were very brave. The chair of the department that was helping to, quote, fund this, somehow they allowed the doctoral students to organize without, quote, supervision. They're grown people, right? But it's like you always have to monitor or young people, because they may do some rebel act that you didn't plan and you didn't anticipate. I mean, there were threats. And then they were told to delete my keynote, which wasn't even that. You know, I started in 1941 with Mao making a statement like we all had to rally against the Nazis and support the Soviet Union. And globally, we needed, you know, to understand the value of human life. And then I worked my way from Mao to... You know, that phrase, United Front Against Fascism, worked it to 1969, the Black Panther gathering or conference on that. That didn't go very well, but SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, had a very productive critique of the, the Oakland Panthers retreating into some kind of liberalism or agreement, like just so the state wouldn't shoot them up and then they could figure out a way, at least Huey Newton, to make money, like through criminal activity. And all this, my long, you know, journey or my meditation here with you to get to revolutionary love is that it would have to triumph over our fear. And we have so many fears, as you know. And it's not even like, I mean, we can't even catalog and they just pop up randomly. It's like by association, the sense of intense vulnerability, that there are no protections. Like, I don't care what they say. I mean, if you can have wealth and whiteness, that'll buy you some time and space. But you need to be careful that some larger predator, you know, doesn't have you in the spotlight. 
But from the communities I come from, there's nothing that the state willingly gives us that registers as, as decent. I mean, there's stuff we get for survival, but there's nothing we get for liberation. Mm. And so revolutionary love, I began to think of it as agape, which is love is political will. Like I've, I mentioned before, I was in seminary, but it wasn't being a sem seminarian. It wasn't getting a doctorate, you know, with conservatives or with Catholics. That wasn't what introduced me to love. It was seeing how people function under stress and in war zones. And like some of what I've said about the book, like at book readings in Brooklyn and elsewhere, it's like going to Nicaragua during the war and seeing Salvadorans in refugee camps who've been macheted by Contras and their faces are cleaved or they're missing limbs and they still have dignity and they still care for each other. It's like going to Cuba and meeting people who are in resistant movements who are losing body parts or at least parts of their minds and understanding that they still have devotion and commitment. And so I have, I have seen love. I can't vouch for it in personal family. I cannot vouch for it in the social order, but I've seen it among revolutionaries and rebels. And it doesn't mean they're always nice or they're always safe to be around, but they are devoted. And so what I heard like in listening to some um, pastors, our pastor in Harlem, is that revolutionary love is about agape. It's political will. It's people you don't like, which is probably a lot of people. <laughs> um, it's the political will to stay in struggle. And that doesn't mean you pimp it or you accumulate wealth from it. You stay in struggle with the humility of understanding that unless you devote yourself to love, the value of your life is inconsequential. And so I don't have the kind of love the revolutionaries do or did have because I'm not a revolutionary, but I know when I see something that is absolutely stellar and it's nothing I can find in academia. It's nothing I can find in elite culture. It's nothing I can find in celebrity culture mm. or commodities culture. It's I've seen it on the street. I've seen it in rebellions. I've seen it like a few times when I was young in fights or battles with the police on the Brooklyn Bridge at night and I like can't swim and there's no netting. And I see the older black women just like calm it down. Like we're going to get through this. I've seen it and I've experienced it. And I think it's rare, but it, you know, that for me would be aspirational. And that for me would be forgiveness for everything I did not do when I could have done something. And I think maybe that's the impulse around the book, like divided as, you know, white feminists from UK asked for a book and it's like, I'm really busy, but how about these conversations? Because in the conversations I hear community in the community, I hear care, but not just as therapeutic or personalized, but care that will move through the stages to confront the war. And if we have to retreat, then we do so knowing that we actually loved. Yeah. I'm aware that might be a really nice place to end it, but I also I could definitely ask you more, but I also wonder if there's anything else that you would like to go over or if there's anything we've not talked about. I would say there's another book coming out in June, a couple of months from now, New Bones Abolition. 
the captive maternal agency and the afterlife of Erica Garner. And this goes back to care. It's like when I was in Harlem, like with kids, and like I said, dealing with the under-resourced, you know, environments. Under our window, we would hear all these marches. I mean, just be hundreds, thousands of people. I don't know. And then I realized, oh, this is Erica Garner's people. And her father, Eric Garner, had been killed. Some people, yeah, we can use the word murder, by the NYPD, choked out to death, chest compression, July 2014. And 2014 was this the trip-off point, right? You could say 2012 with the killing of Trayvon Martin and then the acquittal of George Zimmerman soon after. But 2014, it was it was Erica Garner being killed by, by NYPD, Michael Brown, the 18-year-old, being killed in Ferguson by the police there, and Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old, being killed by police in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And I actually think as much as George Floyd became this stunning moment and everybody was stuck inside, so they just watched the porn reel over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it's real, but this 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 loss of family, right? It was just so much the imprint of the enslavement era. Like somebody sells your five-year-old twins, and then you gotta, this is what I meant about when I was I didn't connect this thought. My mother and my aunt being twins, like you disappear them because you sold them. And then you just, when you can pull yourself together again, which you have to do anyway, if you're going to survive this, then you take on other children and you mentor them. And maybe sometimes there's a harshness because there's been too much violence. And you can't ask me to be like, you know, that Donna Reed, like the 1950s Stepford wife, who's always high on Valium. He like always has a smile when they open the door, right? And dinner's on time at five. But there's this way in which our losses become our strengths. And I, from looking at Erica Garner, I was just amazed at this 25, 26, 27 year old. And then I didn't always pay attention because I had to hustle for the college and I had to take care of family matters and elders getting ill and needing support. Mm. But um, she died. Four months after giving birth to her second child, a male that she named after her father, Eric. So Eric Garner. And I was just so stunned. And then I was furious. You know, because I was like, y- y'all are going to take, I mean, somebody's going to take care of her because I got to do this. I got to take the care of these kids. Like, she's not my kid. And it was like, She didn't have private health care like I do, belonging to a very wealthy college, belonging like they bought me, whatever, employed there. She like, it's like public medicine, public hospitals, the way people treat poor people Mm. is different from the way they treat multimillionaires who can jump to the head of the line in cancer studies and get into Sloan Kettering like in two weeks because you got the money and you know the right people. Yeah, I know people like that. And then I didn't really know people, quote, like her who were working class or her laborers who just got the leftovers. And that's for me is why Bernie Sanders was trying to change a, quote, rigged system. That's why I got really pissed with academics and black feminists and white feminists and whoever was, you know, backing, well, they were hostile to Bernie in order to back um, Hillary Clinton. Mm. So like in that moment of her death, I pledged that whatever talk I was asked to do, it would only be about Erica Garner. It would be for a year. So it was one year of homage. Mm. 
And so whether the college asked me to do something, the students did, the Black Student Union for February, you know, Black History Month, give you that 28-day month. So I did stuff there. Or if I went to Sao Paulo and jurists and attorneys, I don't even know how they got my name, judges like asked me to do a keynote there. Then I talked about her in Sao Paulo. If I went like Toronto, I talked about her there with the candidate, you know, and it, it became the meditation. Like there's love for people you never meet. And that goes back to Attica. They never met George, but they read him. I didn't read Erica Garner because she didn't leave a text between two covers, but you could hear her communiques to the masses. Um, so this is not a biography. And this is not me trying to put somebody else on my altar. That's not my place, right? It's not my right. Mm. But it's a recognition. I see her as a captive maternal. Mm. And when I look at her, her campaigning for Sanders and doing that ad for him, where he comes out saying, if a police officer kills a civilian who is unarmed, they have to be prosecuted. I mean, she Sanders was already to the left of everybody in the Democratic Party, but she just upped it a notch, right? Mm -hmm. And she's the one who offered to do the ad and reached out to him by first tweeting his office. And then somebody called her like, this is the way you do it. We don't do it by tweet. We talk about it. like, And then they filmed they filmed the um, It's Not Over campaign ad. And I'm a poli-sci person. I was like, this is one of the most astute, influential political ads I've ever seen. But then it kind of got buried because people didn't want to deal with the implications. A democratic socialism from Sanders, which was like, you know, like FDR, liberal socialist, like let's just have a safety net so people's kids aren't starved to death or they don't traffic, you know, to feed the younger kids. But that became... That became a way for me to steady myself. And so this book talks about Black feminism and the Black Lives Matter movement, who I also refer some people as, describe them as movement millionaires, but how they were actually backing the Democratic Party and she was backing Sanders, who was primary. He decided to primary Clinton. And he, before that, he was going to do it to Obama to push him left. But he waited to, I mean, it was a bad look, like an older white guy and Obama, yeah. like, you know, black, Harvard trained hipster. I mean, come on, you like, it's not going to work because mm. um, so much of the U.S. is visual and performative. But when he got to Clinton and I would go to his rallies and stuff and, and there's people really look like they were coming from different zones. And I got into the DNC and... Uh, Philly in 2016. You know, I was there when President Bill Clinton was booed off the stage, and I was there when they next brought in the mothers of the movement. So the mothers who agreed to work with Hillary Clinton and become her surrogates. And they were all like in sort of like a gray and maroon, and they had corsages. It was all um, orchestrated. And then later I figured out that somebody leaked. Uh, DNC um, emails from John Podesta, and they ended up on WikiLeaks. And they're basically relevant to what we're talking about. But Podesta told folks working for the DNC, Democratic National Committee, that was run by uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton. He said, like, when people say Black Lives Matter, everybody cheers, but don't say anything specific. Don't mention a policy. 
Like we don't, we're not going to say we have a policy for getting the cops to stop killing black people because that's really not our thing. And so when I was sitting there in the bleachers and I was listening to all this stuff, you know, performance, I understand where Bill Clinton got booed because Bernie people showed up. But what happened when the mothers came on and every time somebody said Black Lives Matter, it was like a wave at a football game. Like everybody stood up and started cheering. It's like, this doesn't make sense. Y'all are not invested in Black Lives. And the leader said, oh, yeah, those were instructions from the DNC. Don't have policy or strategy to mitigate or counter death, but show your exuberance for cliched slogans. Hmm. And I was like, okay. I mean, so because I knew liberal people, I got in. Like I get into these places because I also know liberals, but I can't back them because I need to be devoted to something other than a hustle. Mm. It's interesting to hear you talk about burning up. I guess it's interesting because, you know, you rightly point out that both wings of the U.S. establishment and the U.S. are racist, imperialist, and what's interesting about the juncture that you we are in in the u.s even though i don't live in the u.s but you know what i mean um is there's this kind of false consciousness happening around someone like biden that he represents yeah. anything other than that and i wonder what position that puts movements in where when there's not a more explicitly crypto fascist or just straight up fascist figure in figure like trump <laughs> i mean what, what position do you think that puts in uh puts movements in in terms of well, i mean think about Think about the ice camps. I mentioned earlier about the children being stolen mm. from parents. And I mentioned I or reference Don Wooden about young women and teenage girls, reproductive errors being forced into sterilization because they're told they won't get food or showers or phone calls to speak with their children. So they agreed to these procedures. Yeah. And like if you're 23 and you meet a man and he wants children and you can't. I mean, they leave you and like, great. Then, you know, hopefully nobody's going to commit suicide over this, but this is a devastation. And as Don Wooden talked about it, you know, when we brought on the forum for the college, like through the Mellon grant, you have no legacy. You have like Alenda Patterson in slavery and social death. We call it natality. Right. And that's part of dishonor that you can't protect your children. You can't reproduce. You're not supposed to live in the future, through the future, through the child. And so I keep meeting these amazing people like Don Wooten, you know, mother of five, once she became a whistleblower as a nurse, they forced her out of her job. And then she had to go into hiding with five kids because of the death threats. Mm -hmm. I think that we see very tangible expressions of courage. I don't know if we want to recognize them and sort of make the linkages. And so I think this is at sometimes it's easier to be paralyzed than to be purposeful. And for us to be purposeful, I think we would have to move through the stages of the captive maternal. Like for me right now, I'm interested in Maranage. You know, there's a bit of a debate, you know, on the in the two-hour talk between Frank Wilderson and myself and somewhat Terefe. You know, like Wilderson's not happy because I keep saying I'm not an AP or Afro-pessimist, but I mean, I respect them, but yeah, I'm just who I am, right? And maybe I need to evolve more. But there's a way in which how we how we could care for ourselves and care for each other, because it's all about function, would require our capacity to manage 
our levels of fear. And so that one is hard and tricky because of this psychoanalytics or whatever the emotional registers. But I think it's all doable. We never stop struggling. And I always think about Maranage. I mean, if I'm moving anywhere, it'll be Maranage. Maybe I was at the War Resisters level when I was writing the anthologies or editing them, right, around the political prisoners. And the only reason I did start doing that, I mentioned before, is after the Colorado conference, you know, I did a book based on the conference and Davis was in it and all the right people. None of the Panthers that I invited, they never contributed an article to my memory, you know, the memory I have right now. But when I mailed the um, States of Confinement anthology, because I negotiated with the press, a major press, 50 copies could go inside to the incarcerated. One um, Black Panther vet who was also in the underground said, thank you, but this book is not relevant to real struggle that we experience or the way we're tortured, or he he didn't use the word torture, but how we're treated inside of prison. And I think whatever our fear is that is blocking our willingness to comprehend how violent these zones are, not just because you have individual violent people can't regulate or want to be predatory accumulators, but the state itself is inherently violent. And this, we could grapple with being orphans of the state, but not wanting to return to it. And then understanding that we have the capacity to provide protections and revolutionary love would be the catalyst for restraining our aggressions, not towards our predators, but towards each other. Mm-hmm. And maintaining our zones with all our contradictions, our our racism, our white nationalism, our cisgender heteropatriarchy, which is like a whole mouthful of words there. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Bell Books. Um you know, our pho- our transphobia, our classism, our nationalism, our vanities, right? I mean, I think we can do everything that we need to do, and thus we become cadres. And perhaps for me, the Maranage, you know, if Wilderson is right, as he said in Ontology of uh, Betrayal with Soma Terefe, that they will be Black-led. Mm-hmm. But that means they will be multiracial. And I think if they're going to be Black-led, I don't think it's going to be the Black bourgeoisie throwing down on this. It would be the Black indigenous. And how that gets defined, I don't know. But people who understand um, this phrase, quantum entanglement, that we live and die together. And so revolutionary love would, would allow us to maintain natality with purpose and with honor and with a certain level of gratitude. Thank you for listening to Red Medicine and thank you to Joy for her time and insights. If you'd like to support the podcast, please consider signing up for a £1 a month donation using the link in the show notes. This goes towards covering the costs of the podcast and once we reach 100 subscribers, I'm going to arrange a giveaway for those people. Thanks again for listening.